Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Hassan. Today, as always, we have a very interesting guest, Anna Kruglova. Anna is a lecturer of terrorism studies and program leader for MA Terrorism and Security at the School of Arts Media at the University of Salford. She obtained her PhD in International Studies from Queen's University Belfast and her MA in International Conflict Studies from King's College London and her MSc in Security Studies from UCL. Her research interests are focusing on terrorist propaganda and she's particularly interested in exploring what role internet, media and social media play in the recruitment process and radicalization. She recently published a very interesting book called Terrorist Recruitment, Propaganda and Branding, Selling Terror Online. So, excellent title there. Anna, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And a very illustrious academic career already and, and some top institutions you went there. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself in more in-depth? Yes. So my first degree, my bachelor's degree is, I'm originally from Russia. So I did my degree in international relations in my hometown. And I developed an interest in security. And at this point, I was, I guess, very young and very naive and i thought my career would go a completely different direction i wanted to work for the ministry of foreign affairs thanks god <laughs> it didn't work out that, <laughs> that way i'm very happy about this but at, the, at that moment i was considering what my next options would be and i thought that having international experience if you want to work in international relations and policy is a must so i applied to ucl to get my degree in security studies and I enjoyed living in London, enjoyed the program. I thought it was amazingly done. It gave me a lot of useful skills, research methods. And that was the first time when I had a module on terrorism because it wasn't something I really considered at the time as my further field of expertise. But I thought that the topic is interesting and the way how various issues were presented was not entirely what I expected. So I'd never, I had the same stereotypes, I guess, about terrorism as a lot of people would have, that terrorists are crazy, inherently bad, that there is something wrong with them. And then the more I studied, the more I discovered, the more interested I became. And afterwards I realized that, well, one master's wasn't enough. And I wanted to enhance my experience with learning more about conflicts, international conflicts, specializing in the Middle East. So I went to King's College where I got another master's. And at the same time, I started doing my internship in a think tank. The mission of the think tank was about debunking the myths about the Muslim community in the UK specifically. And again, the kind of breaking this bias and perception of the Muslim communities, Sustat community. And one of the projects they asked me to do was on ISIS. and. That was the time ISIS just emerged. It was a, the project was based on Twitter. So the first time when I went on Twitter to collect my data and see what kind of propaganda ISIS spreading was quite a big surprise for me, because again, I had some expectations. I thought I'll see what we all saw on, on the media at the time, headings, battlefield scenes, etc., etc. And then I go there and yes, you do see these things, but then you see an account called ISIL cats and it's all about fluffy kitty cats coming in with fighters or, you know, this 
famous or infamous picture of ISIS fighter with a Nutella jar. And that just really surprised me. And I became extremely interested in the way how ISIS was, how they came to this idea to use kind of marketing and, you know, the pop culture aspect to uh, attract their potential followers. So eventually this idea developed into a PhD project and I thought I'll try to use marketing technique, marketing theory and marketing framework to explore this further, which led me to Queen's University Belfast where I did my PhD with amazing supervisor, Professor Richard English. And then in 2020, I completed my studies and now I'm based in Salford teaching, which always scares teaching terrorism, terrorism studies, I should say, to people and really join it. And I run the program that is, again, tailored for both people who just came out of their first degrees and they want to work in security or counterterrorism, but also for professionals who already have practical experience, but then they want this theoretical knowledge as well to, to get promoted further or just to get better understanding of the subject they are dealing on a daily basis. Thank you so much. Very interesting. I was scribbling away while you were talking and I find it very interesting what you said there about ISIS and, and how they have mm. refined their message, right? Almost as, as if they got help or, or somebody studied marketing and let's say the, the memification of, of mm. terror propaganda that they were so good at. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that, that their message was so refined and, and also resonated? Well, there is a practical aspect that people, you said as if they, they had someone helping them. Well, they did. They literally employed people who had background in social media, marketing, journalism, and they used their experience. In addition, the fact I think that the, there were a lot of young people joining the group. They did get this insight from the point of view of a younger person, what they would be interested in. And they were really good in realizing that simple narratives that we used to encounter when it comes to extremist messages or terrorist messages would not work anymore. You need something else. You need some kind of excitement and appeal to attract people. And that's why I'm exploring in more depth in my book, how ISIS managed to employ marketing technique and basically form a connection with their target audience, emotional connection, where the audience gets excited about what they see and they see ISIS as this service provider, if you will, that would deliver this excitement and they would want to hold on to, to it. And then it would end up in some people joining the group, migrating to Syria and becoming full-fledged member of ISIS. Did you get a chance to speak to people that, that went there were allured by this message and then came back maybe disillusioned or, or, or maybe still believing in it, or did you get an opportunity to speak with people like that? Unfortunately, I didn't because the research was my PhD project. They were, and it was based at the mm -hmm. university and I was a student at the time. There were a lot of problems. That was actually my original idea. I was going to go to prisons and talk to people who either committed attacks on the UK soil or went to Syria and came back. So I encountered obstacles from both sides, from the institutional side, because of course they would consider it quite dangerous, but also there is a whole process of how you apply to get permission to go to Belmarsh prison or 
business, similar to Belmarsh. And I didn't get it. I wasn't I guess, convincing enough for, for Belmarsh and other institutions to give me permission to do this research project the way how I wanted to do it. So but I had to rely on testimonies that already existed. Uh, there is a brand book by Anspeckled and Ahmed Yayla, who collected the interviews with ISIS defectors and we talked to them and tried to understand why people went and then why they came back. But also interviews that are available on the internet, interviews with former fighters or so-called jihadi brides who also went and shared their stories. So there was a way around this. I do have a project, a follow-up project in mind where hopefully now when I have a little bit more flexibility in my research, I would be able to actually do the way how I would like to do and get empathy to, to get first-hand data rather than relying on kind of open yeah. source, open access sources. Yeah, very interesting because we have never talked about this, but we as Great Dynamics, we do a lot of this type of work. So countering violent mm. extremism, not necessarily online. You wouldn't, you wouldn't yeah. be able to tell, but, but we work with a lot of organizations, mainly in Africa, some oh, in the wow. Middle East and places like Yemen, Somalia, and Kenya, mm -hmm. Ethiopia, and Sahel. And that's why I find it interesting because these narratives played oh it seems like i should rephrase that it seems that these narratives played a bigger role on western muslim audiences mm -hmm. than it did or even non-muslim audiences but it played a bigger role on them not necessarily on the ones living in in maybe other places that are maybe less developed right so it, it seemed that their targeting of of people was very deliberate focused on people living in the west is that something that that you saw and and does that correspond with with your research yes absolutely i would say not that isis targeted specific just people in the west they targeted people in the west and outside the west but the ways how they did it were were different for the western audience the majority of propaganda that the group was using was based on this idea there is a term that i often referred to coined by Jim Berger, five-star jihad, where the idea is that people are getting this adventure, essentially, when they go to Syria. And again, this is also, even within the Western audience, this is just the small segment of young people who really want to get this feeling of becoming superheroes, becoming this badass who fights, who, you know, become granted with a special mission. And then you have also traditional pathways where people are being discriminated against, they are unhappy with the way how things work in the UK or elsewhere, and they go based on their political grievances. In the Middle East, from what I saw and from what I read in other research publications, it was often the financial aspect, because the group was paying really well to people who would come and fight. And unfortunately, a lot of fighters who would come from the Middle East would not be in the best financial situation, so they would have They'll be forced to either because of the way how they lived or because ISIS was nearby and they kind of forced them to join the group as basically the only the only option. There were also members who genuinely believed that ISIS did represent a way to practice their religion better. And it 
it is not to say that religion is a motivation, but the way how ISIS presented the, their ideology and the, the idea of the caliphate, this is actually something that a lot of ISIS supporters would refer to, that the idea of the caliphate, a place where you would have an Islamic state, was really attractive for them. And this utopian message that they could go there, practice their religion freely, they would not be discriminated against, they would become good Muslims the way how they saw it, for many people did play a role, but then a lot of them would also say that the moment they would go there and they see the practices ISIS was using, brutality, tortures, executions, they would quickly realize that it has nothing to do with Islam and they would want to go back, which was not possible, unfortunately. So yeah, it's a variety of different reasons and there is definitely a regional aspects to, to why people would go and join. Very interesting. I remember a couple of years ago, I read a book, I think it was called like War with 146 characters, I think something like that, and spoke mm. a lot about like social media use and messaging and, and warfare. What I see now, obviously, ISIS largely as a caliphate has been diminished, but the the lessons learned, let's say that, you see mm -hmm. that in, in other conflicts and yeah. not even like religious groups or, or pretend to be religious groups or ideological conflicts, but you see that now all over the place. Do you think that has there been an evolution? I mean, that's the thing where I want to go. Has there been an evolution so far to how it's been used and, and who's using it? Or is it still, is there a core principle on how marketing is done generally and and those narratives are still being used well i think isis was an inspiration if you will for as you say yourself for the groups that came after because social media was used by jihadists before but i say brought this again i mentioned before the excitement factor to to this the use of social media and to the messaging and then now, and at the moment, I'm focusing more on the far right and how the far right use, using their propaganda. You can see that a lot of techniques that ISIS was using in their propaganda is now being adopted and applied by far right groups. The same idea of, again, adventure, excitement, this representation of a group as the secret society where, you know, no one knows about you and you have this special mission and for some people, indeed, especially for younger people, this idea works and kind of overshadows the brutality and the negative aspect and the terrible aspect of being a member of terrorist or extremist organization. And they, they tend to focus on on the kind of image of this Harry's image of adventure, image of, again, like, I guess... Nostalgia. Yes, so it's the same techniques and also, I think a couple of years ago, just from, I think it was the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, they discovered an archive of ISIS's materials and the archive had all the documents related to the caliphate, um, laws, various, you know, kind of lawmaking, prescriptions, basically the, the, the group was aware that probably they're not going to last for long, but they tried to ensure that they would be able to restore themselves 
And I think that the, the same idea would apply to the way how they use their social media. So the, the, the technique is there and some of, some of the supporters' spices are still active on dark web and on forums. So they're still using the same techniques. They are still active. And I, I, I would say that our focus is now moving to the far right, but it seems like we tend to forget that even though ISIS is physically destroyed, it's not done completely. And we need to keep an eye on what's happening to, to their supporters and what, what they're talking about and how they interact at the moment and what they're preparing. Maybe cynical, but maybe if it doesn't affect the West, it, it doesn't run. It's not important. Give a small example for, on mm-hmm. the situation and the, the war in Ukraine. Irani drones were wreaking havoc. In, yep. in the Middle East. And now it was today, I think it was announced that Ethiopia bought them a while mm-hmm. back. But until it came to mm-hmm. European soil, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a thing, right? It was not important, which is cynical, but I think it's, it, it, it rings true. It's not cynical at all. It's really true. And that's exactly what you observe when you look at the media coverage, when you have, and I mean, all terrorist attacks are terrible and they shouldn't be happening. But you have a, a, an attack in London Bridge, for example, from 2017 and, uh, and the like. And the coverage of this was excessive. Every single day you would have updates and news about what happened at the time. And then around the same time, there was an attack in Iraq, which took 200 lives. And nowhere was, no, no, no one ever mentioned it. I mean, there was a small piece of news saying that there was an attack on Iraq. But it really shows that, that unfortunately, what's closer, what is kind of dominates in, in the mainstream media is indeed more well-known and gets more coverage and then more attention. And same with the, the situation in Ukraine. I have a lot of Muslim friends who were really upset and devastated when they saw news coverage and comments of the politicians and some journalists saying, well, Ukrainians are like us. We should give them shelter and should give them asylum. And I heard so many comments. And of course, yes, of course, the refugees need to be supported. But at the same time, when we had refugee crisis a few years ago, narrative was completely different. And the approach was what we are going to do to keep refugees where they are. While Syria was under attack, you know, the Middle East was on fire completely and there was very little intention and initiative to help those people. Do you think that policymakers now focus too much on media coverage and the media has far more influence on on, on policy decisions and, and, and laws that, that are enacted than actual world events? And, and we are always behind the curve because policymakers look away when they shouldn't mm. and they let things get out of hand and then it's too late to do something about it and then they're playing catch up and it's like, who's to blame? And, and the funny thing is, is that if you make the decisions based on, as for us as, as intelligence analysts, Mm-hmm. We try to predict, obviously, this is a very difficult thing to do, but you try to predict and you get shot down by a policymaker. 
but then you know because you have to secure your job to do anything mm-hmm. it's much more important to listen what's on the news today and not what's around the corner mm-hmm. i think you're right I, I think when i teach i teach a class which is called terrorism's right response to my master students and one of the first things i tell them is how media affect affects policymakers' perceptions of the crises and our own perceptions of terrorist threats and security threats overall. And I think there is a huge issue that the media tends to be dominated by the social sensations and by the social what resonates rather than provide accurate analysis and actually base their their reports on facts which are going to be much less exciting than the, the new story that would cover, I don't know, uh, an attack happening elsewhere. But the implications are, as you said, that politicians might be willing to follow the media narrative and then ignore the actual facts and the needs and the threats that need to be addressed, because that's what their voters are receiving, the news that their voters are listening to or watching. So, uh, yeah, I think there is a clear connection between what policymakers are considering for their, for their actions and the, the ways how media approaches the crisis. And this, it was actually quite interesting. I showed my, again, I showed my students footage from Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And it was, I think, footage from Associated Press. So it wasn't actually, there weren't any comments. It was just footage. And they told me that it is so different to what they used to see on the media where, you know, you have the kind of drama going on on screen and the music and some kind of, you know, performance, which again affects you psychologically and affects your perception of, of the situation. So yes, I think, I think there is definitely a, a connection. And media, the media industry needs to take more responsibility of the way how they deal with crises and how they cover them. How do they do that? <laughs> good question. <laughs> I mean, there is the concept of good journalism and responsible journalism. I, mm-hmm. I think it's simply doing your job right. And, and I know media work is all about views. It's all about clicks. It's all about how many people clicked on the link. But again, the, the search for sensation, the search for clicks and views should not overtake the facts and the basic, you know, verification of, of information, fact check, etc. etc. The responsible coverage. And you know, you open so many even good quality outlets like the guardian or the independent a few years ago and you see the same narratives about the muslim community being presented as a terrorist threat and the representation of for example a jihadist perpetrator compared to a far-right perpetrator where you have a terrorist versus a gunman or a terrorist versus a mentally disturbed person which is again creating a certain perception within the society and then it is followed up by the government reaction where we have all the attention focused on jihadists and then nothing is being done about the pirate threat while statistically it's much more dangerous than this 
jihadist groups. Do you think as, as researchers and there is a role that maybe the media is not playing that the researchers can take to, to educate policy makers more or, or is there a way to have the messaging clear, but maybe use different channels or do you think there is a place there? Well, I don't think to be fair, it's the role of the media. I think that's the role of the researchers, actually. Yeah. I think the bigger problem we have in these kinds of jobs is this gap between policymakers and researchers. Because we all we, we do all this job, uh, we, we do all this work, and we do all these projects, analyzing things, and then we publish papers, and no one reads them, but they are actually providing some interesting and important information. And maybe if someone listened to them, to us, and it, took these recommendations or observations of world, maybe there could have been some change done. So I think it's really about bringing the gap between academia and practitioners and letting us talk to each other and listen to each other. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. I have, and I, I, I know I don't make friends among academics when I say these type of things, mm. but I think the system, the way articles get published peer reviewed mm -hmm. and the amount of time it takes yeah is ridiculous it shouldn't be i think the system is created to there's a certain level of gatekeeping which mm -hmm. if it was just quality control i would understand but yeah. i think there's gatekeeping for wrong reasons and this is something i deal with young analysts that come fresh out of university is that mm -hmm the way academic papers are written are not accessible for normal mm -hmm. people yeah and, and i'm not i'm not saying that normal people are not smart enough i'm saying that's on purpose mm -hmm. if you don't do that you don't get your degree mm -hmm. right you don't you don't yeah. get published or so i think yes practitioners and, and policymakers should listen to researchers and because i think us analysts we are researchers too It's mm -hmm. just that the, the medium is maybe different, but this is something that I have this conversation continuously with researchers yeah. and, and I fight sometimes with researchers in a good way about, you know, you write an article and you wait a year, mm -hmm. sometimes if you're lucky, a year, and it gets published. After it gets published, it's the, the goal then to get reference as many times as possible and your work right and at the end it's an excellent paper you put so much blood sweat and tears in it mm -hmm. and maybe if you're lucky a thousand people seen it mm -hmm. right while it's very impactful work it's very original work and if you published it on and i know this is not fair to say but if you published it on a blog or on Substack or, mm -hmm. or, you know, on social media, mm -hmm. 10 times, if not hundred times that amount of people might see it. Right. Yeah. And so, so I think there needs to be, yeah, there needs to be a different incentive model maybe to, mm -hmm. to, to research because otherwise, you know, it's, it's so hard already reaching people. Mm -hmm. but if you make it harder for people to find you, it's, it's near impossible. I don't know if you agree with that, but I, I totally do agree. I think 
I mean, I understand, on the one hand, I understand the likeness of the process because you try to ensure the quality and mm -hmm. very often good research does take significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. But as you said, the everything that falls after the long process of peer review and then, you know, you can get rejected and you look for another journal and then you, you listen to all the feedback, you get upset, you start writing it all over again. So it takes time. And I think in some fields, it's fine, even with social science, you know, history or literature or something like that. It's okay to wait because essentially you, you produce good, good research, but the potential for impact to policymaking is probably smaller for a historical piece of paper. I'm not saying there is no impact, but it can wait <laughs> while something like uh, security-based research topics, you know, the strategic studies, analysis of the war in Ukraine, the numerous terrorism, environmental challenge challenges, all this could be potentially used to deal with these problems right now. But by the time your paper is published, there is something else going on already and it's becoming so irrelevant. So yes, I think the, the process I do agree with you, needs to be somehow changed or democratized, maybe. And I think we as academics really do need to learn. And thankfully, I think we're starting to realize that we also need to learn how to talk to people, <laughs> to general public, and to make our research actually interesting for general public, accessible, remove all the kind of, you know, complicated and uninteresting terms and actually speak like normal people and deliver the ideas that we have because they might be useful, they might be taken on board and they might have really real world impact. But also I think there needs to be an initiative from policymakers as well because it often feels like you do all this research and even if you do manage to reach out to people who are responsible for making change, they, they might listen to you and they put your paper on the shelf and they forget because they will still have their own vision of things. And then what's the point then? Why, why did you invite us? Why did you ask us to do something? If we say something you don't like, but it's based on research, it's based on fact, well, I guess it's painful, but it needs to be accepted. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, it's a work, it's a mutual work that needs to be done on, on all sides and there is a good potential and i think the, the collaboration between academia and pr practitioners is the way to go it's just the question of how to facilitate this connection in the most effective way yeah i i 100 agree and this is something i've mentioned on the last podcast for years we've been hearing how russian government and Russian government-aligned or semi-aligned companies were mm -hmm. masters of propaganda and social media and, and messaging. And now we are seeing in Ukraine that that table is completely turned. Mm -hmm. Is that because of maybe the goodwill that Ukraine gets from most of the people, most of the world? Definitely most of the Western world. I, I shouldn't mm -hmm. say most of the world because I cannot really measure that. But most of the West, is, is that because receptivity is higher? That messaging is 
received well or was the Russian quote-unquote threat or sophistication or, or prowess within information warfare, information campaigns, was that overblown? Was that was that threat made bigger than it actually was? I think it's a bit of both. On the one hand, well, Ukraine was attacked by Russia. Ukraine mm-hmm. is the victim, and Ukraine is getting all the support it should, and it has moral prevalence or pre- privilege to to you know you can't. It's hard to 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 support Russia when. There is a clear vision of who who is the, the aggressor here. So it, it's that. It's also the fact that I think Ukraine, whoever is responsible for kind of information, information flow that goes from the from Ukraine is doing it really well. And the, the messages that are being spread are extremely well done. Well, I can say about the Russian side. And in my personal opinion, the Russian propaganda was appalling. And it's not just about the war with Ukraine, but, you know, we had all these stories before about Russian meddling in the U.S. elections and the troll factories and all these kind of things. And there's been research done on this showing that the impact that Russian trolls actually had realistically was minuscule. And there were, they used to be, I'm not sure whether they, I think they are not active anymore, but there was this, I think it was called Agency of Strategic Use or something like this, which is the infamous troll factory of people who were employed to to work on Facebook, on other social media to facilitate certain narratives and screw the support for Trump, for example, or intervene in other political processes. And then researchers, Russian researchers and journalists managed to talk to these people who worked there and they said that, first of all, the work ethics, and I mean, it's hard to talk about ethics in this situation anyways, but generally the work ethics in the place was very, very low. So people would not put any minimum effort to really craft the message. So they would just put random stuff. Now, they would be really under underpaid. And then you have a lot of people not staying for a long time and being replaced by some group of other random people so there was no strong consolidated narrative that would be produced by this agency and i think it's really the perception of the russian threat is or i guess used to be in terms of information warfare really overestimated i think russian propaganda works really well domestically mainly because there's still a huge proportion of population who is nostalgic about the USSR. They see the government even now as service provider. They are scared of the chaos that was happening during the 90s. And they're scared to the point where they would rather prefer Putin to be in power, regardless of how terrible the situation is now and all the terrible things he's doing, than have this uncertainty that they still remember that was happening in the 90s and these people are usually watching tv channels and they they watch channel first and all this kind of outlets and they believe them and i did watch it was i had watched russian tv for i think last 10 years and then i started working on one of the projects there and i had to watch it for for the projects 
<laughs> that was quite a surreal experience for me because I was watching this and I was thinking, and they were commenting on on the war on Ukraine and they had this show debunking myths about the war of Ukraine from the Russian side. And I understand why it works for the people within some people within Russia. Again, there are a lot of people who don't support it and they don't watch it and they don't believe it. I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. But you can see these experts and suits and they present themselves as military analysts and they have serious faces and they have some evidence, call a quote. And then I was meticulous enough to go and check what evidence they would produce, I think, to prove that one of the airstrikes that was aimed at Ukraine was actually somewhere in Yemen and it was performed by Saudi Arabia. So the evidence they produced was actually a picture taken from a Russian QAnon channel. And I mean, that's all you need to know. But obviously people who are the target audience of these channels, they do not go and they not, do not check these things. They just believe. They see a guy with serious face in a gray suit saying he's a military analyst Ivanov for you know someone else. And they believe it and that's all they need. However, internationally, you have the same people with very little skills, very, very little knowledge of how social media works, trying to create very, very awkward narratives that are not believable whatsoever and disseminate them online. And again, the, the impact, the realistic impact is not impressive to say the least. Thankfully, I should say, but yeah, I, I think the, the role of Russian information warfare and the, the scale of it is very much overblown. Don't say that too loud. There's a lot of researchers <laughs> that built their careers on that. I'm just well, you know, in academia, people. everyone disagrees with everyone. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just poking fun because I already know somebody is like annoyed yeah. with me saying that. But But I think also that if you believe in a certain narrative about the world, yeah. For good or for bad, you're going to look for narratives that fit within mm -hmm. what you already believe. Yeah, absolutely. And he may yeah. like it or he may not like what I'm about to say, but I have a friend and he knows who he is, told me last weekend that he had a bone to pick with me because mm -hmm. he felt that I was pro NATO and pro-West in my messaging or what we produce or what we write about. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't supporting Russia enough. This is not a Russian person, by the way. Okay, right. Right? This is not yeah. a Russian person. This is somebody, because I will give it away because people that know me will know him, but mm -hmm. he, he was adamant, adamant that there's this war ongoing right now for good and evil on the world mm -hmm. and the the narratives that he was spouting out identical to what Putin has been now saying for the last mm -hmm. 10 years and what a lot of people on the right wing mm -hmm. side in the West have been saying. They yeah. echo each other. Yeah. And that was very interesting to to hear because I never heard it because this person knows me well. So for mm -hmm. him to be just dishonest to me and say, mm. hey, you're on the wrong end of this. 
and he's not a researcher, but he's a smart guy, was really, really like, to me, it was very surprising that he was so adamant about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm saying this mainly also because he told me that I should talk more about this. Mm. I don't think he liked the way I said it, but but it, it, it seems like there is this, I don't know if they feed off each other or or they truly agree with each other. There is this, and, and I mentioned this with you before, right? There is this longing for nostalgia yeah. on on the Russian side for the Soviet Union and the Empire. Mm-hmm. Even even look like I think Putin even looks at like connections between Tsarist Russia and, mm-hmm. and even to like the Byzantines, right? Like that's how far like he romanticizes about. The, the empire and when you look at a lot on the west it long for this non-existent or maybe very narrow really good back in the day for and, mm-hmm. and it's narrow because it was only good for a sm- small amount of people and that's what you just i think talked about i don't think i've ever talked as much on a podcast as i've done on this one but <laughs> i'm very interested about this topic on what you said about the far right mm-hmm. and how they're messaging, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's coming exactly together. So yes. what Putin and the messaging from Russia has been, what that's been for the last couple of years mm-hmm. is echoing what the far right also says, right? I think it's getting a lot of traction around the world mm-hmm. even. So that I'm interested and, and I don't want to say worried, but professionally maybe I am, but but as an individual, mm-hmm. I'm not. But what do you think of that? And do you think that this is something that has always been in the human psyche to long for, to have this nostalgic feeling and every era people long for for that? Or is there something new? Is this something we really need to be careful about? Well, I think on the one hand, it's probably something that always existed. And every single century, you have people being nostalgic about, I don't know, beautiful 20s, amazing 50s, etc., etc. I think it is just in human nature. But then the problem with the century we are living now is that information is much more available and spreading so class. And, you know, all the phenomena of fake, fake news, deep fakes, uh, misinformation, disinformation. This is something that is really new that we, well, it's not entirely new. Of course, there were there were information campaigns and active measures, as the Russians call them, being implemented previously. But the fact that we have the internet, the fact that we have social media really exacerbated the threat and really made the danger of enhancing someone's feelings, whether it's nostalgia, as you say, whether it's just deep dislike for, I don't know, particular states or disappointment or anything like this, it became, it's become much, much quicker. It's happening much more actively and it reaches out much a much larger audience at the moment. So yeah, I think it, it's old things, but developed and equipped with new tools and methods that are making the situation we are at the moment more dangerous and more serious compared to previous times. 
I can talk about this forever. I definitely want to, to have you back on because I have a lot of, I've written a lot of questions down that, okay. that we didn't really get to that I wanted to talk to you about. One thing that we always do on a podcast that, that I want to ask mm. you about, first off, is for somebody who's listening, because I know not everybody that listens to this podcast wants to become an intelligence analyst or intelligence mm. officer. Maybe they're interested in, in history and, and international relations and they want to become a researcher or mm-hmm. you know, something more along those lines. So what would you give as a piece of advice to somebody who's searching and or not searching or just doesn't know where they are right now or they think they know but haven't heard all sides of things? What advice would you give? Well, it's I know it really depends where you want to go because I think career path, pathway in academia and in practice in kind of practitioner-based field is quite different. Mm-hmm. In academia, it's all about publishing. So that's the major thing. Yes, you, you're doing your, if you go to do a PhD, you do a PhD, but then what you really need to be focusing on at the same time is try to think in advance and think about your research project as either a potential book or a series of articles, ideally, and this really helped me because when I was doing my PhD, I was also writing a few articles. Some of them were based on my master's thesis, so it was kind of easier in the way I treated this in the sense. But you really need to keep this in mind and you really need, by the time you finish, have something, if not accepted and published, but at least written and be ready to be submitted to a journal. Because that's the major thing that universities are looking for your your publications i don't know i can't really say much about the practitioners field you would probably be mm-hmm. much better but yeah i was looking indeed more for for the for the academia side of things and my next question would be any cultural recommendations what are you watching what are you listening to what are you reading i would recommend a podcast called Talking Terror. I think it's run by Lancaster University. And it's usually a podcast which invites practitioners or academics to talk about their research, about their background and their stance on whatever burning issues are at the moment. In terms of reading, now because I'm focusing more on particular information, warfare, disinformation, and... um, kind of more international relations, things connected to the war in Ukraine and connected to the Russian propaganda. I'm catching up on theoretical theoretical models that could explain why certain things work in information warfare. So I, I've just read a book, I think it's not on my shelf trying to find the author, but it's called Active Measures, actually. It's looking at the Thomas warfare... Reed. Yeah, Thomas Reid, thank you. Between the West and the Russian propaganda all the time. I, I thought it's brilliant. It's really, really interesting. It gives you this very lively picture of what was happening behind the scenes at the time. And then, well, I I always have my supervisor's books on the shelf. And so I always refer to them because I think Professor English is one of the, you know, one of the people who just created terrorism studies and you really need to know his work really well and to refer from to time to time because things change but some of the ideas he expressed uh, 
are still there and still relevant. Well, well, you, you asked me about the the books, and as an any academic, I'm, yeah, I, I, is I'm there anything? <laughs> I mean, is there anything that is not that you was like a guilty pleasure or something that's not really work related? Oh yeah, absolutely. I love reading, and I do try. Of course, you have to catch up with academic stuff, but I am very interested in murder mysteries. Academic, but not academic, but still related. I'm interested in true crime, and yeah, it sounds very dark. Kind of thing. I'm giving a picture of myself like a, a maniac, but I think you know your your profession still has has impacts probably on your reading interest as well. So I'm interested in psychology. Mo- both from just personal perspective, but also, you know, the kind of manipulation techniques and the reasons why people become not only terrorists, but sociopaths, serial killers, these kind of things. I, I think it's fascinating where our mind can take us. Interesting. Any any recommendations in that genre? Oh, I just literally finished today the book by Robert Galbraith, who's John Rowling. I think she's still an amazing writer despite all the controversy. And she has a series of murder mysteries written on the pseudonym Robert Robert Galbraith. And I've, I've always enjoyed... I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, but I am a fan of her murder mystery series because it's very well written. It's very sophisticated plot. It's, you never guess who is the, the murderer or the criminal in these books, which I tend to do really quickly. Usually I haven't read hundreds and hundreds of them. So yeah, that's one of the most recent ones. And I just started a book by Javier, who was involved in, in this case in Manchester in 2008, when he was arrested for downloading an Al-Qaeda manual, well, wrongly arrested. And he just wrote a book about his experience and shared the whole trauma and the stress he had to go through while he was clearing his name and dealing with MI5 and other, other organizations. So. This is interesting. This is not an academic, but at the same time, it yeah. is. It's kind of guilty pleasure without any guilt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Thank you so much for that, and I hope you know we can fit it into your schedule. But I really want to have you back on because there's like a whole thing that that I want to talk to you about, which is Russia and Africa, and mm. and nostalgia for that, and and what the role of the Soviet Union was, and mm. and how the, those narratives are being used again. I also wanted to talk to you about Wagner, but we didn't really get the chance for that. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Really thank appreciate you so much, it. I'm sorry, I know I ran late, and I appreciate you indulging me. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you again and engaging with you again on on these topics. Thank you so much, Ahmed. I really enjoyed talking to you as well and looking forward to uh, reconnecting and having another chat. And yeah, for anybody listening, please give us feedback, give us ratings, even if they're not good, and let us know what we can do better and what we are doing well. And hope to speak to all of you next time. And Anna, again, thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks, you too.